Hey, it's Tobias here. If you want to learn a little bit about my firm or see my portfolio, head on over to acquirersfunds.com. All right, gents, ready? Ready. Hi, I'm Tobias Carlyle. This is a brand new podcast. We don't know what it's called. We're thinking after hours, but if you've got a better suggestion, uh, let us know. I'm joined by my regular co-hosts, Jake Taylor, author of The Rebel Allocator. He got a telephone call from Charlie Munger. We're going to talk to him, uh, hear about that right after this. And then uh, my third co-host is Bill Brewster Solomar. I can never say it correctly. How do you say it, Bill? Solomar, capital group. (laughs) We're going to talk to each other right after this. Tobias Carlisle is the founder and principal of Acquire's Funds. For regulatory reasons, we will not discuss any of the acquirer's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of acquirer's funds or affiliates. For more information, visit acquirersfunds.com. Jets, uh, anything interesting happened this week? Oh, this is gold. Go this ahead. is absolute gold. Yeah, it's, it. it's, you know, it's like, you know, when Seinfeld started and they you kind of like, the first season, you knew it was going to be good, but they didn't quite understand when to come in. We're just ironing out the kinks. Yeah, for sure. It's all going to click. I think that that sounds great. Let's let's talk about the rebel allocator and getting a telephone call for Charlie Munger. So anybody who hasn't heard that story, let's let's hear that story, Jake. That's a great one. Okay, well, I'll give the quick version because it's even I'm tired of hearing about it at this point. But uh, you know, I I, ha- I wrote a book that basically tries to teach some of the lessons of capital allocation through a fictional story. And I, Munger and Buffett obviously factor heavily into it because they've been so prolific in teaching about uh, all kinds of topics. But I sent Mr. Munger a copy of the book and, um, you know, maybe about a month later, I get a phone call at my office and uh, it turns out it's, it's Munger on the line and he wants to talk about the book. Uh, and his biggest thing was that he actually encouraged me to get it made into a movie, uh, which is its own kind of daunting. <laughs> where's where's that up to? Is that is that happening? Is that in in train? Uh, there are some developments at this point. Um, maybe some screenplay. Wow. Writing happening. Uh, not not by me, but uh, I'm I'm helping a little bit with someone who's more talented than I am. So we'll see. It's. That that whole thing is is so far outside of any of my area of expertise that uh, I don't even know what's right or wrong. But uh, it's fun to work on it. So, so, so I mean, th- Charlie, yeah. The, so to, just to wrap up the Charlie story, he um, he wanted, you know, he's encouraging me to get it made into a movie, and uh, he he also had some comments about, uh, you know maybe looking a little bit more widely as an investor and don't try to fish where everyone was fishing. And that that kind of turned into a, uh, a funny story in the wall street journal about, you know, calling all of us value guys, cod fishermen. And, uh, so <laughs> I think we're, you know, there's a bunch of cod fishermen on this, uh, podcast was, right now. Was that Jason Zweig? It was. Yeah. Cod fisherman. That's probably what, fair for value guys. Yeah, I didn't take umbrage to it uh, too much, but it was, it's definitely a, it, it does highlight an interesting, I think, phenomena that maybe we'll get to at some point during this podcast where we have 
the information now has gotten so readily available that you know, if you were just a value guy in the 60s, even just looking through the numbers gave you such a huge advantage. And now it, it's it's gotten much tougher now to to really try to find value that other people aren't finding. Well, that's the kind of the informational argument for value, right? But is that the, I kind of, I lean more heavily on the behavioral. I, I think that, and there's a, I always bring it up and I should get John Huber on the podcast at some stage, but John Huber wrote this great uh piece where he talked about even in very large cap companies you know they they vary from two-thirds like 30 percent tripling over the course of a year and he gave the example of jp morgan which i don't think it backed off at all through 2007 8 9 it might have had a couple of years where it didn't grow book value something like that but the share price was wildly all over the place and if you just kept an eye on even book value as unpopular as that is but that's probably a pretty good way of valuing financials valuing banks if you kept an eye on the book value you bought it at a big discount to book value you've done really well yeah well i mean look at apple since december right i mean you're going to tell me that that company has changed 70 percent value no way it just goes to show what a goat buffett is backing up the truck and buying a ton of it when it was down like that he's a beast i mean i think i think the thing about that is it's always easy in retrospect to be like oh yeah that was a buy Pulling the trigger and catching a falling knife, you know, and knowing when it's not a knife that's going to stab you and when it's a butter knife or whatever, you know, I mean, that's <laughs> that's like what makes the greats the greats, I think. So how do you do it? What's the what's the secret to that? Uh, TBD, man, I'm still working on it. But I, I mean, you know, like I, for me, I got more lucky than good, I'm sure. Right. In December, um, part of it was was watching uh like I said, part of it was being lucky and part of it was like, this is panic right now. Um, and the stuff I'm buying, I'm comfortable owning, right? Like the, the cash flow underlying, even if I have to wait a while, like especially with Apple, you know, you're going to benefit so much from the buyback if the shares go down. I actually just let go of it today. Uh, you know, it's the capital return story doesn't go as far at these valuations. Um, and I, I don't know, I mean, I'm even having a little seller's remorse, right? But like, it was so much easier to identify that it was cheap than, I, was it right to sell? I mean, I, I don't know. That's a sort of a harder question to answer, but, um, you know, we'll see. Well, they're two, they're, it, it, they're two sides of the same coin, but buying is hard, but selling's even harder. Yeah. Yeah, because- that's like Munger says, right? He's like, I'm good at buying. I'm not very good at selling. I, I feel like I probably suffer from the same thing. The people who are best at selling never sell. You just hold on to it. A decade later, you're like, oh, we're up a thousand percent. Yeah. I think that's one of the, maybe the secret sauces of Berkshire that doesn't get talked about enough is that that constant replenishment of cash coming into the inside of the company, they never really have to sell anything if they don't want to. And there's always right. new money coming in to buy the next interesting idea like that. <clears throat> what a huge advantage compared to when you're you know, if you're managing a, a fixed portfolio that you have to dump something, you know, like that can give you a lot of uh, remorse. Well, yeah, Markel benefits from that. Fairfax to a certain extent too, right? I mean, I, th- I think Markel's philosophy is closer to we're going to focus on companies that are quality and we're going to sort of, you know, we'll maybe buy a little bit more when we think they're cheap. We'll maybe dollar cost average throughout, but like, I almost think of that portfolio like a levered quality portfolio, 
And, you know, I mean, over time, if you have strong underwriting and you're reasonably good at identifying, you know, when to buy something, which they obviously are, I mean, you know, you would think that that's going to be a powerful engine. That, that was AQR's analysis of Buffett too, wasn't it? That he was uh, 1.7 times levered to the quality factor, I think. And there was very little value in there, which was surprising yeah. to me. Well, it's so different from the from the partnership days, right? Uh, right. At which least from what I understand. Very much. Yeah, that's right. When he was when he needed to make the money, he was like a value guy, right? Buying it like a net net guy, a, a, a liquidation investor, if it if he needed to be like an, a, a pretty hardcore activist who actually went in and shut down the shut down the business and liquidated, it, even though the townsfolk were upset about it and they were writing letters in the little local newspaper. Don't my favorite this image, Toby. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> my favorite rate story of, of that was from when he just went. He painted a line inside of the the warehouse and said, "Like, if you don't get the inventory below this line, <laughs> then everyone's fired." Basically, <laughs> we're going to shut the business down. Yeah, that was was that was that the first? Is that the Harry, was Harry Bottle the man who had to do that? Yeah, that was uh, the Dempster Mills. Uh, activist position so, so while we're talking about value this was my uh topic for the week there's I, i've been kind of collecting these things on twitter and i've been pumping them out it just seems to me like there's a crescendo of guys out there shouting about the fact that value is so vastly underperforming uh, momentum or glamour or growth or whatever you want to call it and uh that the spread however you measure it is now sort of it's not quite at 2000 levels, but, you know, so AQR, Cliff Asness had this piece that came out uh, last week, I think, where he said, you, you've, you're basically now faced with the, pro the prospect of value has two sort of paths. Either it's going to blow out to dot-com levels, which is possible, but unlikely. And if you exclude the dot-com period from the data, then you're in like the 100th percentile for value underperformance, which would seem to suggest to me that it's pretty stretched and we should be going into if not you know immediately if it hasn't already started which there's i think there's some possibility that it has we're going to go into it soon we're all value guys so we're all talking our book but how does that strike you you go Jake, first you want it? all right well uh so nobody wants I mean, to jump on that grenade no no <laughs> I, i'm fine jumping on it uh you know i'm sure uh you know i don't want to to upset compounderville um at all um but you know what? So Jake and I uh, participated in a weekend where we got together to to talk about subscription businesses or recurring revenue. And Jake's comment was, "This is sort of toppy if a bunch of value guys are coming together to talk about recurring revenue businesses, right?" But the the one theme that I think uh, everyone could agree on is if if the business was close to like a real recurring i mean cpg is sort of recurring revenue in its own way right but like i mean i'm talking something sassy or peloton for, for the folks the, who don't know what's cpg oh like consumer packaged goods right like and, and SaaS is software the, as a service yeah that's right so like the the continual consumption of diet coke i think is pretty recurring um but you know the new sort of sexy version these valuations that that we were all you know talking about i mean we were all scratching our heads so i don't know that value is the side of this that that makes the alligator jaws collapse i'm pretty sure that growth investors like traditional just i i don't even know what you know 
top decile evaluations, I don't know that that returns, you know, very good returns unless you really are skilled at picking the right winners. I'm going to take the contrarian view on this. Uh, I think even though I would love to be rooting that like this is, you know, the rubber band is, snap, you know, stretched so far that it's a it's time to for value guys to to come back to the, you know, being heroes again. When I look at the the relative valuations of, let's say, the cheapest 10% today versus the cheapest 10% in 99, those two baskets are completely different. The cheapest today are typically debt-laden, uh, poor, really poor quality businesses. Um, and and I'm, I'm fine buying things that are poor quality for the right price. But even then, the price is just relatively cheap to that most expensive today. It's not that cheap compared to the 99. And so, you know, if I think about, you know, kind of a GMO analysis of like, well, where's your starting price? And I'll kind of tell you what your future return might look like. I, I would more imagine like value putting up very small, maybe positive numbers over the next 10 years and everything else being b bigger negative and that so yeah out, it's ready for outperformance but it may not be the performance that you actually want uh so to to me at the, from these levels where we're starting there is no real great outcome available so you know i see uh the problem I see is uh, that, you know, I, I wrote a book ages ago, Concentrated Investing. Uh, nobody's ever read it. It's, uh, but it's, it's not. It's somewhere on this bookshelf right here. <laughs> there you go. That's one of the people, that's one of the dozen people who bought it. <laughs> one of the dozen copies. There's an interview in there with Glenn Greenwald, who's a brave warrior, formerly chieftain. And he talks about his methodology or his method was to, he wanted a 10% free cash flow yield in the next two years. So what that means is he could buy at whatever, like six or 7% free cash flow yield, provided that he could see that there was this pathway to growing the business enough that in two years time, it would be at a 10% free cash flow yield. Now, if you're looking for a 10% free cash flow yield in this market, even one that's like a few years out, that's really, really hard to find because that's, you know, in my very deep value basket, my free cash flow yield in that basket is ten percent, but it's look you know the 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 reason that it is that way is a lot of these businesses look like they're declining. So ten percent is a very fat yield. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I agree. I I think uh, you know I like to think of investing as you have two ways out, right? You can you can add price appreciation to the point that you think it's sort of silly and sell, or you get paid back your cash flow, and. You know, one business that came up a lot this weekend is Rollins. Uh, they do termite, um, you know, they, they kill termites. You're paying like 30 times earnings. So out of the gate, let's just assume for purposes of this conversation, earnings and cash flow are the same. I mean, the earnings base that you're paying for, you get a 3.3% cash flow yield. Now, yeah, the incremental dollars that they can deploy, you earn the business's returns, but it's not as if this is a tiny company. You have to wait a really long time to start to, you know, they say it trends towards Roik. I mean, that's going to take a long time. Like, uh, and I, I'm not sure that people fully understand that right now. I think, you know, when, uh, 
the difference between a 3% discount rate and two, you can get a lot of price appreciation off that. Um, Why is but, a business like that defensible? What's the, what's the moat there? What's the competitive advantage? I suspect it's like one of these local economies, of scale service-based things you want, you want a termite killed. You're not going to try to like go to, you know, I, I'm pretty sure they're Terminex. I'm not sure uh, that, that could be wrong, but I, I'm not sure that you want to have like Toby and Bill's and Jake, sorry. Uh, you know, like termite. I don't want into that business. Killer. No, you're not into it. It's a great business. What if it's yeah. cheap? What, what if we just come in at half the price? I don't well, think it I mean. works that way. Especially at a restaurant, right? I mean, you want you want everything killed. So I think there, it's it's probably off the top of my head. It's a low cost, high certainty of kill, recurring type business. So that's what I think people care about there. I, I doubt they're price shopping that much. You don't think so for for termites? You know, I, I'll bet if you open up the phone book, there's like that's that phone book is a thing that used to exist before the internet. If you went and looked on the, if you went and Google searched Terminator, you know termite terminators in your area there'd be like three pages of them yeah but maybe this guy buys uh, maybe the big guy buys all the ads the advertising then where does the value for that flow does it flow to the termite guy does it flow to google i i think google's the tax on everything these days as is facebook that means you got to own google right google at any price (laughs) gap so, gents, other topics. What have we got? Well, one thing that we that came up during this weekend that was kind of a fun, uh, call it a game, and we'll I'll see what you guys have to say about this. Uh, but here are the ground rules for it. And maybe if you're, you know, try playing this game with your friends and see what they come up with, and maybe we can like crowdsource what's a good answer to this because there were some very unsatisfying answers that we came up with. Uh, so here are the rules. You're allowed to pick any security, long or short, I guess credit or equity, um, and no, so no derivatives, no options. But here is your goal. You have one year, and you have to get the lowest possible return that you can get, lose the most money. Ideally, you go to zero. Okay. Sounds like it would be easy, right? And this is this is why it's interesting is that it's really trying to get to Michael Malbison's idea about, um, you know, when you try to determine luck versus skill of something, if you can fail on purpose, then that means maybe there is some skill involved. So you think of a roulette table, uh, you know, I could try to lose by putting all my money on one of the numbers and I'm, I'm likely to lose, but it, I could also win really big. Um, so... There's the rules. What do you guys have? Bill, why don't you start since you uh, you kind of already answered a little this weekend? Yeah, I mean, I I probably go to a levered minor or something like that. But uh, long, you know, with my, long the levered minor. Yeah, that's right. But like with my luck, they end up getting a bid, and I you know end up six x you know, and then and then I got it. Then it's like a Brewster's Millions type problem. Um, <laughs> But we were talking about, I mean, I think the tough thing about this is it also hits on the second order thinking, right? Like, it's easy to say, well, I just buy this piece of crap, but that piece of crap is priced like a piece of crap. And if something changes, you're going to have a lot of money that you got to blow in the next, you know, let's say it takes six months. You only have six more months to lose it all. And I I think what we were getting to is, is over the short term, there's a lot of luck in this game. What do you say, Toby? 
Yeah, well, that, I would I would add that I mean it, it means almost literally one year's results are meaningless. Yeah, completely meaningless. The the issue. So if you had just taking the roulette table example, like you can have the the win, but if you can play all day long every day for a year, you can vaporize that money, right? Yeah, you that's could, true. You, you could grind the, all the way through it because the vig and the you, you just you're getting a, a return that's less than one all the time. I think I could. I don't have to trade it, but I think that if I could trade it, I can get you much closer to vaporizing that money. You know, I, I, I've got a I short. I got a short screen. I've got things that I think are going to go down. The, pro, the and but the, it does illustrate one of the problems that Bill brought up then that you do have to have. You're looking for stuff that's overvalued or you know is mispriced anyway, yeah. and that's the problem with um, with investing. A lot of stuff is pretty well priced. Even the junky stuff is pretty. It's accurately priced. I'd be going through that. I'd be going through that short list of short names, and I'd be buying them long, buying one of them long, and then I'd trade them more regularly because I think that oh, you got zero cost trading now, right? That you can really set yourself on fire with that. <laughs> yeah, that's it's hard, but I do think that I do think that investing is a game of skill, and I do think you can lose over the course of a year, and I think that that's. That, that's some proof that there's some skill in it. I think that there is an enormous component of luck, though, which is what makes it so hard. Well, there's definitely, I mean, I, I think what we were talking about is, like, there is certainly skill over a five-year time horizon. The the one year, I think I think we were backing into almost Depends our Depends on those five years, though. Like, let's say yeah. 2009 to 2014, did you need a ton of skill to make money? You needed guts, Right. I mean, a lot that's of people true. were hiding. Yeah, that's right. very true. Which I, I think that's a, that is a tra- that's a learned habit. Right. I think a lot of uh, I mean, certainly me back then. Right. I mean, I was an amateur back then. I was a lot more afraid than I think I'd be now. Uh, OK, how about then 2014 to 2019? That might be the better sample. That's a hard one. Yeah. Was that, yeah. Was that luck or skill? <laughs> I guess we'll see. Right. Yeah. I think. I think that that period is an interesting period because, um, you know, the, the, the value, I don't want to say factor because factor is price to book, but the, the guys who are like me who are buying more on yield, care less about growth, definitely have not performed very well through that period of time. If you're somebody who leans a little bit more heavily on growth, so if you're trying to buy growth at a reasonable price or that Buffett compounder style, then I think it's probably been quite a good period for you. I don't think it's, you've done quite well. Yeah. Well, I, th- I think what those guys probably did well in aggregate is realizing that the, the path of distributions was mispriced. Um, I guess the tough thing about that is as that thesis gets proven out, the world gets priced in a rosier and rosier way. And eventually, you know, there's not a lot of you start being right for the wrong reasons now. So you're you're saying that that was this fundamental change wrought by the internet, where that marginal cost, that marginal sale was at zero cost or, or virtually zero cost. That's the software as a service or anything distributed over the internet. Yeah, I I mean I think what what certainly I missed. Uh, I you know I don't know about the market or whatever, but is. Um, just how much margin inflection was on the horizon and how persistent how persistent that would be 
Um, and, you know, some people saw it. Um, and then some people probably got lucky, right? But uh, they're not all lucky by any stretch. The question is, going forward, what's the right bet? Because, uh, you know, anyone can know what the history said. So my my answer to what I would try to do is I, I thought about how could I find like one particular thing that might change that I that I would be very highly levered to. So for me, I, I got to thinking, all right, I want to be long the most ultra like duration that I can get. So I I would short the Argentinian century bond. <laughs> <laughs> and it's either it either is going to work spectacularly or totally blow up in my face. But I'm I'm basically making a huge interest rate bet as much as I can and, and hoping that that changes somehow. If you're a macro investor and you had so let's say you don't put 100 percent of your position into this. Right. Let's say you put, I don't know, some sense like one or three percent, something like that. And then you build out a whole portfolio of these things. Because that's such a contrarian bet, I'll bet there's almost nobody in the world who thinks that that's a good trade, right? So it's probably... Well, what's ironic is that actually I would, I might also take the long, the Argentinian century bond as my bet. Well, that's what I mean. straddle. You're just, either, you're just betting on vol. You're betting on either, the move, yeah. Either yeah. one of those is has probably a decent chance of being such a crazy vol that maybe it, it it helps you win the thing you have to the, the only way that you you win on that though is if the vol is all is too low if the vol's already in those prices then you then that catches you that's why it's such a hard game it's the expectations game right well that's where people get crushed in options right like I, i'll have friends that'll be like oh i think this is going up and i'll buy the calls and I just say to him, uh, if, if you don't know what the term vol crush is, you should stay as far away from options as humanly possible because there's nothing worse than being right and losing your money. Which is an, which is an interesting point that you bring up because the VIX, the index, has been it's, – it's trading at close to all-time lows. I think somebody's thinking about taking it private. It's, it's been beaten up for so long and it hasn't done is anything. Is KKR going to do it in LBL on the VIX? <laughs> Uh, right at the, uh, but I think it's one of those things that, like when when the when VIX gets beaten up like this, and you can go and get the vol calls are cheap. VIX VIX calls, front month calls, they're all cheap. They're all like thrown away at the moment. You can pick up some of that stuff, and you know probably you're going to throw them away. This is the this is the old Taleb strategy where he'd be trying to sh- short closer to the uh, closer to the mean, closer to where the price is, and he'd be long further out in the tails, which means that you lose money most of the time, but you gain it all back. Like every seven years, you get the thousand-year storm. Anybody playing that? Anybody doing that? It's not how I'm going to run my money, but I, I like the theory. <laughs> I've done it. I've thrown away all my money that I'd put into it, though. I've, I've experimented with that as well, uh, and I, I like the bet. I don't think... And I've it was a hundred percent loss on all of the money that I did that with, um, but I, I, I still don't think it was a bad bet at that time. It was I thought it was very mispriced. Well, had, to be fair, the odds are such that it. Sh- I mean, it, it should be a hundred percent loss, right? You're not really betting on getting your money. The expected value of the bet may be correct, but that one particular bet. The expected probability is not good. You have to work out as a proportion of your portfolio what you're prepared to lose on it every month or quarter or however however you're 
positioning the bet so that over the course of a year, you know, you burn one or two percent of your portfolio, hoping that, knowing that at some stage there is going to be a big bust and you're going to capture it. The problem is, I did it pretty consistently and it caught two big, I caught two big busts. I caught the 2018 one and there was an earlier one, I forget now, 2016 or something. In both instances, these things were explosive, like they were rocket fuel. This is just in my PA, this is not anything I'd ever do professionally but they were like in both instances they got up to something like 30 percent of my portfolio value starting out wow one percent here's the problem in both instances i wanted to hold them through to uh expiry which was like you know at the end of the month which was only like a week or two in both instances in both instances they expired worthless wow that's the problem with those with those european style options that they expire only on well you can punch out of them you you can sell out of them yeah but the problem is is that the people the the market i think it's i think it goes back to psychology actually of like you know you will you will take a gamble to try to avoid a big loss but you won't do that for the the gain at the same way like it's kind of loss aversion so they will see that like they maybe have this really big payment coming if that was to expire and they were on the hook for it they'll roll the dice and so they won't buy themselves out of the position like they won't hedge the, which the, the hedge would be it being closer to what you would want to get for being on the other side of the trade does that make sense the volume does the volume does pick up as they move into the money like they become much more liquid as they move into the money so when you buy them like you basically if you buy them out of the money you buy them like two or three standard deviations out of the money and they're basically illiquid. Like you can't, you can't roll them. You're in them until you sell them. But if you get a move where the VIX approaches your strike or goes through your strike, they become very liquid at that stage and you can sell out of them. Just in both instances, I was thinking this is a hedge. So I'm not going to close out this position because I'm still long everything else and I'm trying to get longer on that side. But in both instances, like after being well in the money, you know, that... January 24, I was, I was, you know, it was, that was looking like a pretty good Christmas, but that was the, <laughs> that was the absolute pinnacle. And then they expired like 21 January and they were, they expired worthless over that period. Of time. Oh yeah. So, especially with this B bottom. Right. Yeah. That, that was a, that was a sucker punch there. <laughs> Looked like value was going to start working then too. It well, that's, to that's the, that's the part of them that I always found attractive was that I was going to be granted a very large amount of capital right when I really wanted to be able to put it to work. You get that uh, third pocket. Yeah, that's, that's appealing to me. If you, if you take advantage of it in the sense that you start investing longer and then they expire worthless, you, I, I don't think you've lost out in that, you know, even though I'm upset about the fact that the, the call expired <laughs> worthless and I would have made a lot more money if it hadn't, but I was at least buying stuff longer in my PA that I... I may have been nervous about, but I was like, oh, the PA's kind of like not, the PA's up a little bit. I should be buying some more stuff here. It should be getting longer. Unfortunately, I was buying value stocks, so it didn't work out quite <laughs> yeah. as well as I hoped. Double whammy. <laughs> and none of it was Apple because I thought Apple was going to get cheaper. Eventually, they were going to buy in their own shares. They just have too many, too much cash. Well, that's the funny thing about Apple that it goes through that three-year cycle where it's mid iPhone and everybody thinks oh, it's all over and then I oh, bring out a new iPhone oh, it's all good again 
I still don't think, I mean, it's not like particularly rich here, but then there's the part of me that's like, it's also a trillion dollar company. Like that's objectively a big number. Yeah. 1.2. Yeah. But then they got like, you know, a hundred million cash cash or something like that. They got 53 billion coming in every, uh, you know, year. I mean, it's the, the cash, that thing is a cash machine. It's incredible. Uh, even at this valuation, they can buy in five percent of their market cap every year, which is like sort of hard to fathom. Do you use an iPhone? Yeah. Do you use an iPhone, Jake? I do. I'm on an Android. I refuse I, to get locked in. This this podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's it's it. being recorded yeah, on a Mac. We're not that's, going green that's with Mac. this podcast. <laughs> no, I'll tell you what. What I found really interesting the other night, I was watching. Um, the morning show, the Apple show that they, you know, with Jennifer Aniston. And is it fiction or is it a, what is it? It's fiction, yeah. Okay. Yeah. It's not like an actual um, morning show. No, it's a. It's okay, a, sorry. It's okay. Um, so anyway, it got me into the Apple TV ecosystem again, right? It did what it was supposed to do. And then there's this little icon for Disney Plus. And I was like, oh, I'm a shareholder. I'll definitely buy Disney Plus through Apple. I click on Disney Plus and it diverted me to the arcade app. And I was like, this is not at all what I want. And it, it blew my mind that they spend, they're spending all this money to get me back into the ecosystem. I'm back there. And then it's, it felt like so gimmicky and not very Apple to get me into the arcade. Just to what? Say like I've signed up for the arcade and they have X amount of users. It just, I don't know, something rubbed me like really wrong about that move. And oh, let's say it was a software glitch. That should not exist. It's <laughs> well, if there's been some problems with the streaming, right? They didn't get they didn't get the streaming right. Yeah, but I think this is an Apple issue, not a Disney Plus issue. Well, I heard some issues with Disney. You think so that the streaming was an Apple issue or the streaming was a Disney issue? I didn't even get to sign up. So it was like a it was it was as if they were diverting me to sign up for something before I was allowed to sign up for something. Or <clears throat> Sorry, or it was a software glitch. I don't know what. Either way, it was. It did not just work, so to speak. I saw a lot of discussion on Twitter over that period when it was supposed to launch of people who couldn't get in and they couldn't watch what they were supposed to be able to watch. I, I didn't sign up until after that all went through. I have signed up now because I wanted to see The Mandalorian, which is excellent, by the way. Surprisingly good for a, for a Disney Star Wars type movie. I saw a guy watching it on the plane, and I almost looked over his shoulder to watch it. I decided not to be. It's the best Disney Star Wars movie that I've seen. Like, it's—I mean, it's a TV show. It's like a half-hour episode, but it's much better than any the other new stuff that's come out. I think the first of like the episode seven. Does that make sense? Like, not the original ones, not the not the reboot from twenty years ago. The the reboot from like five years ago. That first one was great because it was like a throwback to the original stuff. The second one was unwatchable. I, could, I couldn't tell you what happened in it. But The Mandalorian's pretty good. It's interesting. I'll be signing up soon. I mean, I have kids that are right at peak Disney age. So me too. They've got me for years. <laughs> it's pretty cheap. It's like seven bucks a month where they say oh, you can get the whole year for 70 bucks. I was like, all right, I can do that math in my head. I'm a finance guy. I'll buy the whole year. So, Bill, what's your topic? What have we got? Um, you know, I've been thinking a lot. Uh, one of the concepts that came up uh, was if you think about, um, like, where you're going, right? Kinetic energy, 
the formula is one half mass times volume or times volume. Yeah, right. <laughs> times velocity squared. So like in that equation, the speed or velocity is much more important, but velocity is speed times direction, right? So you've got to make sure step one is go in the correct direction. And then step two is, you know, the, the speed that you are going in the correct direction is more important than whatever size you are at the time. Um, and I, that was, uh, we discussed it talking about Berkshire and I thought that that was a pretty interesting way to think about the idea that, um, maybe they've, they've always in their head been like going in the right direction and then sort of accelerating and slowing down as the time sees fit, but they've, they've done everything that they can to not let the mass sort of drag them. Um, I don't know if I messed up some of that, but that's sort of how I'm processing it. I haven't done physics since grade 12, so they might have to lean on the uh, the electrical engineer. Are you an electrical engineer? Uh, I am not. Te- no, not the person that no. said it is the the person that had the thought. I am, I am merely reflecting on the thought, which is why I said volume and not velocity. <laughs> <laughs> At least you didn't say volatility. That's right, yeah. <clears throat> no, it is an interesting uh, concept. Um. I'm not entirely sure. Like, you know, that's sort of a, it sounds like you're reasoning from first principles, but it almost maybe still be like reasoning by analogy in some ways. Like, uh, but it is an interesting concept. And I do think Berkshire represents it pretty well in that, you know, one thing of, you know, like what's the, what's the number one rule of investing, you know, that's kind of like, you know, don't lose money. And then that's sort of like, don't go in the wrong direction. Um, and then, you know, a lot of things that, that Buffett will say, it will be like, you know, play center court, you know, don't, don't push towards the line, not too much leverage. All those things are in the effort of not kind of going in the wrong direction. Um, so yeah, I think it makes a ton of sense myself. You know, and it's interesting, like you look at Fairfax, right. And this could be res- resulting, but you know, that hedge, like it really set them back. Uh, and I, and I think, a lot of people, it's it's almost tainted, you know, a, what is otherwise a really good career. Um, I don't know. It's just interesting. Avoiding the big loss is just something that I've been ruminating on since this weekend. It makes me think of two things. One is that Rentech Jim Simons. I hope I'm saying it's Simmons or Simons. Um, how have they done that? That's insane. Those yeah. 70% pre-fee for how, 25 years. Is it longer than that? That's bananas. Yeah, it is. Are they paying out all the capital? How are they doing that? It's not compounding, surely. It's bigger than the stock market now if it's compounding. Yeah, I think they kept it trimmed at a at a pretty small level. And I think the if if I understand it right, and I, I maybe I don't, but their that number that you referenced was for their internal, like you know, Medallion. employee. Yeah, and not necessarily Reef. what everyone else got, uh, which is Rafe, right? Yeah, so I don't know. I don't know how they did it. I, I, there was one funny thing I saw. I think it was in the Wall Street Journal that uh, they asked some of the guys there, like you know, you had to the money had to kind of come from somewhere. Like who was on the other side of all these trades? And one of the guys, I think maybe being a little more diplomatic, said, you know, it's probably you know traders who were making bad choices or you know not being decisive enough or whatever. And then another guy said. Yeah, probably a lot of dentists. 
Yeah, <laughs> like, that's right. Yeah, we just we just took all the dentist money. <laughs> yeah, do they have, do they have that much money? I don't know. I mean, I think dentists do pretty well, but <laughs> I mean, the, the, I don't mean dentists specifically. I mean, the is there enough kind of retail churn out there for uh, for medallion to make that much money? I have no idea. Well, that's why I would probably take the under going forward on doing that again, because I think there's been I think just like the the actually Malbosan was talking about on your your podcast with him uh, on the choirs podcast. And he was, he was talking about how like the poker games when the, you know, when it got popular in 2003 ish and all these new people started playing and all the sharks had all these minnows to feast on. And it was like right. the heyday for poker. You, you could probably say that that was pretty similar to maybe what Rentech saw. And then, you know, all the, all the minnows get eaten and now all that's left are sharks swimming around trying to eat each other. Uh, and, Maybe that more accurately describes what the, you know, with everyone, with so many people opting out to index, um, they're, they're kind of taking their their chips off the table a little bit for the other players that might have been feasting on them before. So Even it, Jack Ryan, did you see that? I did, yeah. What do you see? Like the, someone in asked the him new for Tom a stock Clancy, tip. yeah, give me a stock he, tip, doctor of economics, and he says, get a low cost SP 500 fund. That was great advice 10 years ago. I think that's not great advice now. <laughs> It's uh, it's tough to look at some of these things and think I'd want to own a lot of those. Right? I, mean, it, I mean, you get them for basis points, though. So there's that. There is that. Uh, you might be worried about pennies and missing the dollars, though. I'm not sure. One of the but things that... I I am biased, right? I believe in active. So uh, yeah, we'll so do I. It's I, I think if I work the problem backwards, like if you if you go to construct a portfolio, would you build a portfolio like the S and P 500? There's just no way in the world you'd do it that way. Right. At a minimum, you would at least like equally weight or something. I mean, the market cap weighting to me seems really dumb and, and, and discriminates against some things that you really want, like high insider ownership, maybe, uh, or at least like some skin in the game. You know, the, the fact that Buffett has what call it 20 or 25% of Berkshire takes that out of the float completely. Therefore, right. less liquidity, therefore, less representation in the in the index well that's that's kind of boneheaded like he's he has skin in the game here i want to be on his side more so it, i don't know there's definitely some what a good idea taken too far uh can lead into stupid behavior i think it's less egregious now than it has been at various times in the past because there were in the 80s i think uh exxon sorry xom that's exxon isn't it am i losing my mind xom was 40 percent of the index so do you want a gigantic oil company? Would you hold 40% of your holdings in XOM? You wouldn't. No way in the world, unless you've got some high conviction view on what the oil price is doing, which I don't think really anybody does. Now I think so there, the was biggest... a, there was a pretty, there was a funny story from the, from Canada, actually, when in the dot-com, like Nortel got gigantic and it was probably like 30% of the index. And all of the fund managers uh, who who didn't have enough of it in there because they couldn't keep up with any index unless they were just absolutely you know super long Nortel. But then after that completely blew up, the the managers were kind of like patting themselves on the back, like look how much money we saved everybody by not having you in in Nortel. Nortel. But really, but what actually what it was is that 
they could only own 10% in any one idea or any one security in their mutual fund. So they, they couldn't keep up because of that regulation, but then they, uh, when it blew up, they took all the credit for like, you know, not being so long Nortel. <laughs> Having some risk limits in the portfolio. Yeah, exactly. I think one of the th- one of the theories that I have heard about the dot com boom was that all of these dot com stocks they were pretty low float. There just wasn't much around. So when the indexes kind of tracked them going up like that, it was, you know, I I don't know if you remember the Janus funds. They would like jam them. They were very big funds that would jam themselves into these small dot coms and blow the dot coms up, and then keep on buying into the dot com. And it was like this self reinforcing. Um, you know, wasn't that were, uh, Oakmont Stratton? Didn't they do the same thing? <laughs> yeah. That's the Wolf of Wall Street, right? Yeah. But I think the Janus Fund thing was well, that was a real one, and those guys were kind of heroes at the top and zeros at the bottom. And I think that was like a microcosm of what was happening in the index, except it wasn't just one fund; it was a whole lot of funds pushing in. And so apparently, you know, that's one, that's one of the arguments for the rise of passive being a dangerous thing, because as these funds become bigger and more of the market moves to passive that they push you know that has this huge distorting effect on the markets that now the active guys can't ever kind of push the markets back into order i don't like that i i think it's a bad argument because i think that if active survives on distortions you want the as much distortion as you can possibly get run i want stuff left behind well i think it's the it goes back to Keynes about can you stay you know solvent as long as or, or you can't stay liquid as long as the market can stay irrational um and so if you have every every person who would be paying the right price is just getting dominated by the flows that are happening it, you know it's if they go extinct then you know how many of them are left to to fix it i don't know it's 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 an interesting argument but i wonder if you do like if you're just a long only manager and you're you're picking up, you know, if you can get a ten or fifteen percent yield on these big stocks that are still growing and doing pretty well, do I care whether that anybody else is buying them or not? Probably not, right? Like that's part of being a value guy is not expecting to see performance in the names that you hold, you know, trying to get the returns from the underlying performance of the business. Yeah, you just want a rational capital return strategy, right? Uh, I mean, the thing that drives me nuts is you know these companies that are like yeah we're gonna buy back shares it's, uh, at at any price right i mean like w- what does that mean um but yeah to your point i mean if you buy it cheap enough as long as management understands how to get it back to you at a reasonable in a reasonable way it should not matter i mean it shouldn't I, matter if the market's closed right i kind of like the fact that there has been I, I mean i i think that there's this a little bit of a resurgence of buybacks in Certainly, the names that I follow. So I hold Conoco Phillips, like that's announced a three billion dollar buyback, and I hold uh, uh, names just escaping me. Just oh, HPQ, which has got Carl Icahn. Uh, he's on. He owns Xerox and he owns HPQ. He wants them to combine. HPQ, they forecast three billion dollars in free cash flow for 2020. You can buy it now for an enterprise value market cap. There's virtually no debt. Thirty billion dollars. So that's a ten percent. Free cash flow yield plus a five billion dollar buyback announced on top of the one point seven they've already got outstanding. Like if that doesn't move the stock, then nothing moves the stock. 
I mean, it is what you, that's probably the best thing that you could hope for, for your, your basket of your style of EV to EBIT, um, buying back at cheap levels of that. I mean, there's, there's probably nothing else they're going to do that's going to move the needle as much, right? Well, I kind of hope that there's going to be, I kind of, you know, I, I'm trying to buy these things at a business trough. So I'm hoping that I'm getting some upswing as the, as the business comes back to them a little bit. I appreciate that that's harder to do than, uh, than it is to say, but that's the idea. Like the, if I look at the, the historical growth in my names is terrible. It's like four or 5%. So it's, it's a little bit better than uh, inflation. But the Ford growth is pretty high. Like the, and this is, this is like um, looking at their reinvestment rate, looking at how much money they're making, how much they're reinvesting. That's how I'm interpreting the Ford growth. Like the Ford growth is like 11 or 12%, which I think is, mm. I'm kind of hoping that 10% free cash flow yield, 11 or 12% in reinvested growth. That should, like if that doesn't work, then value investing doesn't work anymore. Like that's, that's my definition of investing. So that's interesting that you're using their reinvestment as a. So, I mean, don't reinvestment don't really times any... historical return on investment. Okay, that makes more sense. Now I was gonna say you're just assuming that re- return on investment is kind of equal across the universe, but no. Well, I'm saying that their historical return on investment is a reasonable proxy for what they're going to do forward. Like I don't actually know if that's what they're going to achieve, but that's what I'm kind of hoping that. If you reinvest this much in your business, you've got some maintenance capex, you've got some growth capex, but you should be able to maintain your return on invested capital across a year or so. And so I can get a pretty good idea that they at least will be growing. Whereas I look at some of these expensive companies, you know, they can't buy back much stock because they're just too expensive relative to the size of the business in there. And mm-hmm. um, if they're reinvesting at these rates, like they're kind of chewing up capital. <laughs> I mean, I'm a dinosaur, but the you know the uh, so the um, some of these SaaS names, uh, you know, the software as a service. I, the thing that I wonder is, especially when it comes to enterprise, like to me, a lot of that game is the quality of your sales force. So it's like a sales and distribution game. And let's see, say the market starts to care that you're spending as much in SGNA as you are in revenue. Uh, and you start to have to cut people. And then does your stock get re-rated on an earnings multiple? And then if that happens, like, do your sales guys just look around and be like, you know, what am I even doing here? There's other jobs that I could get and, you know, get different. Because at some point, your stock comp almost becomes demotivating, right? If the price is so far out of the money, what are your options really worth? It's just, you know, fairy dust. So... <laughs> You went to work there to probably in those situations to, to leave with a very, very healthy amount of, of equity in that company, right? Or, to I change mean, like, the world. Right. So, yeah, it's to change the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, this, I think this is what Greenblatt is getting at when he says some of these are going to be what people are pricing. All of them are not. Right. So so out of that basket, there is a pretty high degree of certainty that you'll underperform. And that's why, uh, you know, on my Twitter feed and whatever, I just tell people know what you're doing. Right. I mean, some of these guys know exactly what they're doing. And I'm sure that they're well, I'm not sure, but I, I would bet a higher probability that they will be fine in that game. But like me, I would just be donating my money to these people right now. I mean, I don't know what the heck I'm doing in that space. Isn't trying that kind to of- learn. 
that's the that's the reason that people invest. Like what, you know, when you you see all the data on here's what glamour stocks or growth stocks or whatever you want to call the most expensive decile. Here's the value stocks or the, the trash stocks that nobody wants to own. Value pretty consistently outperforms growth. Has it been true for the last decade? Um, but the re- and people say, well, why? You know, if you look in that historic, it's worked over the last decade, so it's easier to make the argument. But historically, people would say, well, why would anybody buy the most expensive ones, knowing that they don't perform that well? And it was this behavioural argument that all of the really big winners, individual uh, winners, came out come of the out expensive of that population, start. right? So, you, you know, there's companies like Walmart. Walmart just never got cheap through its entire, like the 25 years that it grew insanely. Microsoft never got cheap through the whatever, 25, 30 years that it grew insanely. Amazon, never cheap, just always grew insanely fast, always was optically expensive on a ratio basis, but always growing just so rapidly that you, you just could never find a way to rationally value it. You just had to trust that it would outgrow the overvaluation that it apparently had at the time. Which, by the way, anyone that thinks that they could have held Amazon, like go read Brad Stone's book and really think about all the executive departures and all that stuff and tell me you would have held. Like, you had no to foresee way. AWS. Yeah, right. I mean, basically, the only one that held was somebody that Jeff. said, I love Bezos and I'm just going to let him do what he wants because he's a genius, which, you know, turned out to be right. But I, I fundamentally disagree with people thinking that they could have watched that day to day and been like, oh, yeah, I'm fine. It's fascinating because I, you find that Amazon dominates so many investment conversations these days. Like everyone talks about the like when they're looking at a business. Well, oh, how can I? How is this? Could this be affected by Amazon? And I don't remember a time of, or another company where it was that kind of like apex predator that everybody worried about. Like, I wonder if Sears was. I mean, and I know that that sounds silly, but Sears had quite an organization back in the day. They did. Sears but was they, the Amazon they, of its day, right? Yeah, yeah they, I mean, that's from what I understand. And I mean, I you know, I don't know all the entities that were spun off, but I think if you follow the the Sears spinoffs, you'd be like, whoa, I didn't realize that all that came out of it. I agree with the retailing component of that and, you know, some of the manufacturing stuff, but like they had a I mean, financial division. I don't know. All right. Yeah, I think it was an Fair impressive point. organization. Oh, no doubt. It was an incredible organization. We've got uh, a question from uh, a listener wants to know, this is Austin from Melbourne. Is it important to understand if a company's revenues or profits are sustainable or overstated, understated due to boom or bust conditions? If so, if so how do you go about this? Is it yes. important first? My man, I would say that's the entire game. And if you figure out how to do it, uh, <laughs> let me know. No, I mean, you know, I, I do. Like, if you if you think that you're in a boom time, you better be paying a trough multiple. And if you're in a trough time, you can pay a rich multiple. And, I mean, you know, it's uh, – I think that's a pretty hard question. Is that a market question? Is that a sector question or is it specific to the business? Well, I, I'm talking D, about all of the above. That's right. Yeah. yeah. I think that Eric Cinnamon, who I talked to, has a he has a an approach that sounds more like Graham's, where you go through and you find you average the last decade that that takes out the business cycle. Then you're trying to buy at a discount to the average earnings. The problem is we tested it in quantitative value, taking averages from everywhere from one to eight years, and we didn't ever get better performance doing that. Mm. 
So it's a, it's a really, really hard question. I think in an individual company, you want to be trying to buy close to the, you want to pay at trough multiple on trough earnings. Uh, I think that's super hard to do. I think if there, uh, if you read Edward Chancellor's capital returns, um, that maybe gives you the best chance of having a framework for understanding that capital cycle theory. Uh, doesn't make it easy though. I mean, even even though you know it, it's still still really hard to recognize what is cyclical and and what is secular. Well, how about this? Why don't we work backwards? We could say you don't want to buy a commodity in a boom time, right? You don't want to pay a peak multiple on a peak on a high price for a commodity. So any company that's cyclical like that, you have to be very, very careful. As for other companies that are kind of not necessarily commodity inputs, then that's a more difficult question, right? Are you paying a peak price? Do you assume a kind of trajectory of growth? That's a much yeah. more difficult question. Can entrance come? I mean, the thing that Jake and I always joke about is everybody talks about TAM, but nobody talks about TESS, which is total eventual supply, right? I mean, so that's total addressable market. Everybody talks about how big the market is, but nobody talks about their competition. Yeah, and, and what can go on with it. And that's that's that capital returns book, right? They sort of look at the world backwards and say, okay, well, what are supply constricted industries for some reason or another, and then work into what they want to look at. So that's a great book. People should read that. So I, I, I think we've uh, kind of, we've given all of our thoughts on it, which is pretty limited on that question. So that's a good question. Thanks, Austin from Melbourne. Uh, now, if folks want to get in contact to uh, further illuminate any of the questions that we've talked about today or to submit questions, Jake, Taylor, how do they get in contact with you? Uh, I'm pretty easy to find online. Um, you can, my email's not too hard to find if you want, but also uh, Twitter's a good place to find me, and I'm at FarnhamJake1. And I'll stick that in the link to, the, uh, to these notes. And Bill Brewster, how do people track you down? Always on Twitter, <laughs> at BillBrewsterSCG. As in Solomar Capital Group. And uh, I'm Greenbacked, G-R-E-E-N-B-A-C-K-D on Twitter. Also Greenbacked at Gmail if you want to if you want to shoot through uh, to send me an email that I can read out on this. Gents, that was our first one. Uh, what do you what, what do you want to score us for that one? I think it's better than a five. <laughs> out of what? Out of a hundred? Out of ten. Out of 10. I had a good time. I hope somebody enjoyed listening to something we said. It's going to get better. I had a good time. I would give us a seven. I think it'll it'll keep getting easier to uh, not step on each other's toes as well because it's a little bit of a lag sometimes when you're when you're recording these things and you're you don't want to talk over somebody. So, but yeah, we'll get it figured out. I think for a first effort, it, I think it was pretty solid. I think I'd give us a B-plus for our first effort, but we're shooting for an A-plus, and so it's going to get better. Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, we'll be back in a week.